Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Welcome back to the Brain Care Podcast. And this time we're joined by Dr. Neil Barnard, the New York Times bestselling author, clinical researcher, health advocate, and founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. So firstly, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Neil. How are you today? Delighted to be here. Thank you. Could you give us a little introduction to yourself? I feel like my very quick intro didn't quite do you justice. So how do you describe yourself in your own words? I'm a physician. I'm here in Washington, D.C. By training, I'm a psychiatrist, board certified in psychiatry and neurology. However, I have to say I've been done a bit of a career change, and I've been spending the past many decades focusing really on what people eat and how their food choices affect their health in a great many ways. One of those effects, of course, is effect on brain health. Can you talk to us about your book? What actually prompted you to write it? Quite a number of years ago, I was approached by a foundation for work on diabetes. They were funding the diabetes research, and frankly, they were tired of funding studies on rats and mice uh, because they thought it, they, we weren't getting very far, and they didn't want to fund that kind of research anymore. And so they asked me if I would work with them and help them design trials that they ought to be doing. And I said, well, if you want to understand human health, we ought to really be studying humans, um, which we can do ethically in a variety of ways. And I designed some trials that we then executed. And from there, we started looking at the effects of diet, especially on diabetes and on metabolic conditions. And eventually it became very clear that the same kinds of dietary changes that are good for diabetes and can sometimes even make the disease go away are good for the body in so many other ways. They're good for the heart, they're good for reducing cancer risk, and they seem to be able to reduce the likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. And that, of course, catches my attention and everybody else's attention because if you make a list of all the diseases you don't want to have, the top of the list is Alzheimer's disease because when you get Alzheimer's disease, you lose everything and you lose everyone who ever mattered to you. So can you talk to us about the Chicago Health and Aging Project then? What was that study about? Yes, the, the Chicago Health and Aging Project began in 1993 And the goal of the study really was to look at how food patterns that people were following on their own, not as part of a clinical trial, but just the choices people made every day, how those affected uh, their brain health as time went on. So the researchers who were affiliated with Rush University went around Chicago, they recruited lots and lots and lots of people, and they asked them, what did you eat for breakfast today? What did you eat for lunch? What did you eat for dinner? They tracked them day by day, and as the years went by, Uh, several really important themes emerged. The first big one, it seemed to me, was in 2003, which showed that a certain bad fat called saturated fat, that's the fat that's especially in dairy products. It's also in meat products, but tends not to be there in vegetables and fruits and so forth. But people who ate the most bad fat, saturated fat, had two or three times higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to people who generally avoided it. And then right on the heels of that, they said it's not just the saturated fat, but it's also the trans fats that are used in a lot of snack foods. Now, they went much further and they found many other leads, but just those findings alone 
If we put that to work, can you imagine cutting the risk of Alzheimer's by as much as two-thirds? If you had a pill that would do that, that would be the world's greatest pill. Um, but this pill was just like throw out the bacon, throw out the cheese, throw out the dairy products. Um, that's something we wanted to do for our heart anyway. So that, that was really life-changing for many of us to discover that, that diet could potentially have that much power. I, I should say that we need to differentiate what we know from what we think. What we know is that when people eat a lot of these bad fats, whether they're trans fats or the saturated fat in animal products, we know that they're associated with a loss of cognition as time goes on. And what we think is that the reason for that, the, the, what links those two, really is pretty simple. It may, it may be as simple as cholesterol. Now, it could be other things too. But when you eat bad fat, we've known for a long time, your cholesterol level goes up. Then high cholesterol levels affect the heart, but they also affect the brain. And that starts to make sense because you see other drivers of Alzheimer's disease like obesity or diabetes also tend to promote arterial changes. And so it could well be that this old-fashioned separation of artery diseases will lead to stroke. And it could be other more intrinsic changes to the brain that could lead to Alzheimer's disease. It could actually be that those two work together, that when the arteries are damaged, the brain is left out to dry, so to speak. So we think the effect on cholesterol, as simple-minded as that may be, could go a long way toward explaining this. And in support of that, researchers at Kaiser Permanente, which is a big medical provider here in the United States, looked at about 10,000 people, and they found that their higher their cholesterol levels, the higher their risk of Alzheimer's disease. And most worrisomely, the cholesterol levels that they measured were when the people were about 40 years old. So what we think is happening is midlife dietary choices will affect our metabolism in many ways, and among them is brain health. I think there's a lot of fear and uh, inherent belief that, you know, one of the most likely reasons people get Alzheimer's is genetic. So for example, my grandma had it, therefore I might be more likely to have it. As I've come to understand it more from the scientific research point of view, there's obviously evidence to support that there's an aspect of it that's genetic for sure. But like you say, a lot of it comes down to lifestyle choices that we're making during our lives. So I'd love you to just speak to that a little bit. You're exactly right. The old idea was that it was old age and, and genes. And if if you were young, you'd be okay. If you didn't have the genes, you'd be okay. But if you have the genes, you're, you're basically cooked. But we learned a long time ago that genes don't necessarily express themselves. For example, there are certain genes for lung cancer. And what those genes do is that they make it harder for you to eliminate from your body carcinogens that you may have inhaled. So if your liver just can't detoxify carcinogens and they, they stay in your blood, you're likely to get cancer. But what if you're just not exposed to carcinogens? What if you don't smoke? Then those genes that influence how you eliminate carcinogens, they're completely irrelevant. We don't care. You're not going to get lung cancer in all likelihood. There are genes for Alzheimer's disease. If you get the, the ApoE Epsilon 4 allele, this genetic trait, if you get it from both parents, your risk of getting the disease could be 10 or 15 times higher than if you didn't have it at all. If you get it from one parent, your, your risk is probably tripled. And so that has led to many hopeless conversations. I've got the, the gene. What can I do? There's nothing I can do. Yet some research has shown that individuals who have that genetic trait, but who tend not to eat much saturated fat, they just don't do the dairy, they don't do the meat, their risk of developing late-life memory problems 
is dramatically reduced. So we need more research to see how well this plays out. But it does look as if even people with genetic risk can use lifestyle changes to make a big reduction in the likelihood of getting Alzheimer's. In your research, you know, you talk about anthocyanins like in blueberries. So can we talk about how they impact your brain and how much you should consume? Yeah, it's been an interesting thing. Quite a number of colorful parts of food. People are familiar with, say, beta carotene. They're familiar with, with lycopene. They, they, may not, they may not know these names, but they know the compounds because lycopene is the red color in a tomato and beta carotene is the orange color. It's in a carrot or in a yam. Anthocyanins, that's a little bit more of a mouthful, but everybody knows them because they're in grapes and they're in blueberries and they're also in the autumn leaves. Um, Nature makes these quite powerful antioxidants and they look quite pretty. And at the University of Cincinnati a number of years ago, researchers brought in a group of people. In fact, these were people who were already suffering from what I'm going to call mild cognitive impairment. They knew who they were. They might even be driving, but they knew their memory was not good. They had a lot of memory gaps. We call it mild cognitive impairment. The average age is 78 years of age. And what they asked them to do was to have simply a grape juice, about two cups a day, call it a pint over the course of a day. So it's a lot, but you measure it out. It's not anything that a person can't do. And they looked at their uh, ability to learn things and their ability to recall and found that both improved within about three months' time. The same research team did a similar investigation with blueberries. And in this case, they used blueberry juice, but the blueberries themselves could be used, and they found essentially the same result. Now, there's there's two things I hasten to say. Blueberries and grapes do not have any bad fat in them. They didn't come out of a cow. They didn't come out of a chicken, so they don't have any, any animal fat. That's good. So it's not just what they lack, but what they have. They have these pigments, and colors in nature very often reflect antioxidants that we believe are protecting the brain. Super fascinating. I mean, I'm a massive proponent of uh, of blueberries and we make a product called the Smart Supplement and part of it is the equivalent of 25 blueberries in each daily dose. So we have anthocyanins as one of our key products in there because the research and evidence is there, but it's not well known in society. It's not like a vitamin D story, for example. Unfortunately, people have gotten a bit seduced. If I can use this terminology, so Mother Nature gave us our retina and color vision to be able to actually detect antioxidants. If you go into a grocery store, you can see the beta carotene at 100 yards away because that orange color will register in your eye and then your brain interprets it as positive. And there's nobody who ever said, oh, those carrots are ugly. You know, we're always attracted to colors. And so your, your retina can detect the anthocyanins and can detect the lycopene because that's purple and that's red, just like beta carotene is orange. If you were a cat, you don't have that color vision because your natural diet is, you know, you're a carnivore. You're not eating blueberries. People who might not have evolved to have that color sense would not have been attracted to those things. And presumably they would have not had the survival advantage that people who could recognize antioxidants do. Our problem is that today we take those same colors and we put them in an M&M's bag. And so that now means candy and it means junk. But what, ne- what Mother Nature had in mind was that color means antioxidants. Neil, before we invite you back for a second part on the amazing work that you're doing in researching nutrition with Alzheimer's and later learning, let's say, I'd love to know what brain care means to you. So how do you take care of your brain in your daily life? What are some of the habits and behaviors that we can expect to find you doing to look after yourself on a daily basis? 
I have to say I start my day with an entirely vegan diet. I don't eat animal products at all. You would not be too surprised to find me having even things like broccoli as part of my breakfast. That's not how I was raised in Fargo, North Dakota, middle of cattle country, but that's the way I eat now. And my lunch and dinner follows suit. I haven't had any animal products in quite a number of years. When all is well and I'm able to to be on my preferred schedule, I also do like to lace up my sneakers and go out for a good run. I am not a skilled athlete, but I do like to get the the heart pumping a little bit. And I think that combination of being able to feed your brain healthy things and also to exercise is a good thing. And my most difficult challenge with regard to lifestyle is to also to remember to stop. Your brain needs needs sleep. So around 10 o'clock at night, it's a good idea. No matter how good the book is or the documentary is or whatever, it's good to turn it off and give the, the brain a chance to recover. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us, Noah, and we'll speak to you on the next episode. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. If you want to know more about how well you're feeding your brain, you can head to yourheights.com forward slash brain food to get your free score from 1 to 100 and start taking action from there. See you next week.